I mentioned that um, I, I mentioned that booklet. I tell a little bit of the story of those coins in that in that in that devotional booklet, Thirty Days with Paul on Mission, and that also is available in electronic format. Uh, PDF, you can read it on your, on your smartphone, your tablet, computer as well. See the pictures larger or smaller. Uh, if you want the electronic version instead, we'll link that into the blast next week. Or email me this week and I will just send it to you. So it's electronic as well as the printed version. We were, we were singing a song, Ancient Words. And in that song, they talk about the sacrifice, the martyr's blood on every page, the cost at which God's word came to us. You know, I ran into that as we were touring the cities of Paul. And stories of these martyrs emerged. In fact, one of the last significant persecutions in the very early 300s, just before the Emperor Constantine, there was a, a, a severe persecution in the Roman Empire against Christians by the Emperor Galerius, and it was particularly intended to stamp out the Word of God. What they were on search for and what they gathered up, rounded up, arrested Christians and pressed them for in your church, in your gathering, who are the readers? Who have copies of these texts that you read, your religious texts? Who has copies of those? And they would go to those people's homes and they would gather and destroy as many copies of the Word of God. It is amazing the thousands and thousands of manuscripts we have when there was such an intentional early effort to stamp out God's Word. But do you know what the result of that was? Very quickly... In the turn of that, into that fourth century, very quickly the church gathered and said, we need to be clear together on which of these writing, which of these letters are God's word that we are willing to lay down our lives, shed our blood for. And so the church got together and one council after another, they confirmed together, we recognize these writings are the word of God to his church. So the very efforts to eradicate, to eliminate, to stamp down the Word of God. Those very efforts are turned by God and used to confirm and to strengthen and to uphold and to send out the Word of God, the Bible that you have today. Others meant it for evil, but God used it for good. That's what God does. Don't be discouraged about the trouble that you're facing today, the, the issues that are going on in life, the mess of it all, because we haven't seen the full redemption of it yet. But that's what God does. Uh, the, the, when, when things like that come up in the church, when issues come to the church, how do they get together? How do they de decide these things? With, with so many pretenders, with so much deception, with, with so many lies, so rampant in our cultures today. Everybody's got their own version of what the truth is to them. How can we know what truth is? People around us need to know the truth that you and I have contained in God's Word. People around us are getting ripped off by that which is not real, by that which is not genuine, cannot be trusted more than ever, and certainly still, the church needs to be on mission. I'm so excited to, to be sharing some of this. What came clear to me while we traveled those cities was God's church is intended to be, created to be, 
Go therefore and make disciples. It is called to be a church on mission. Then and now. So that's why we're going to jump into the midst of the book of Acts. So we're going to trace that path and share some of those things God shared us out of the word in those places with you in the next couple of months. And as I began to do that, I was all set to jump right into Philippi. What a wonderful city. And yet, I had to back up a step or two. How was it that Paul got to Philippi? How was it that the church went on mission in that way? How was it that the church was ready to be on mission? Because we need to be, if we're going to be on mission, we need to be ready on mission. We need to be on mission in the right basis from the same place in the same direction. And it's funny, actually a difficulty, an attack within the church, confusion about the gospel is what it took to get the church all the more mobilized together and multiplied on mission. That's what we're going to look at this morning in Acts chapter 15. This first council of the church is recorded where the church from various places comes together to be clear together because the gospel had been confused The gospel needed to be confirmed that the church could go forward with it. So I invite you to turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 15. Acts chapter 15. I know we're jumping right into the book of Acts. I hope you'll forgive me of that because uh, no matter where you start in the Bible, unless you start in Genesis, you are jumping into the middle anyway. So we're going to begin in Acts chapter 15. We'll start working our way forward from there. This will be probably be one of the larger passages that we'll deal with for the, for the next couple of months. But Acts chapter 15, what is it that got the church ready to be on mission? First of all, I said the gospel was confused, and I'm going to begin there in Acts chapter 15 and verse 1. The first 11 verses. But some men came down from Judea. So there Paul and, Paul and Barnabas are teaching in Antioch in Syria, just north of Israel. They have come back from that first missionary journey into Galatia and into the center of Turkey, what's modern-day Turkey. There they are now back in, in Antioch. And some came down from Judea, and they were teaching the believers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom and law of Moses, you cannot be saved. There's the initial confusion. Unless you are circumcised, you cannot be saved. You're not really saved if you haven't fulfilled this or that requirement in the law of Moses. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas, some of the others, were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about this question. Interesting, the church didn't just take Paul and Barnabas' word on this. This is central. This is huge. And there's a whole Old Testament behind what these guys are saying. These guys seem to have come from Jerusalem, from the founders of the church. So we need to get the whole church together on this. We need to sort this out. So on they go, on their way, they pass through Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers, Christians, who belonged to the party of the Pharisees, they rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them, these new Gentile Christians, and to order them to keep the law of Moses. If they are really going to be genuine Christians, they need to be keepers of the law. That's what these Christians were telling other Christians. 
So the apostles and elders are gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. God has already clearly demonstrated that he has saved Israelites by faith in Christ, and he has saved non-Israelites as Gentiles, as Romans, by faith in Christ alone. No other conversion into following the law. That's what Peter is saying here. We've already seen that happen. We know that's the case. So then, verse 10, why are you putting God to the test? Why are you placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that, that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. We will be saved. See, there is a I have been saved. I am now accepted in God's presence on the basis of what God has done for me in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ died for my sins. He bore away my guilt. He gives me his rightness, his righteousness, his right standing before God. That is how I have been saved. I am still being saved, and I will be saved. God is continuing to work in me his likeness. God is bearing fruit. He is, he is growing godliness in Bob. Believe it or not, it's happening. It's coming. I know you're looking, you're waiting, but it will. God is doing that. He is bearing his fruit by his spirit in my life, and there will come a day, an ultimate day, when I will be saved. Past present salvation, future salvation. I have been saved. I'm being saved. I'm being changed. I'm being transformed. I will be glorified. When I see him, I will be like him. Oh, we long for that day in the midst of this one, don't we? And Peter says, all of that, we believe we will be saved, Peter says. We apostles too, we believe not only were we saved, but we will be saved. Our acceptance by God and our present walk with God pleasing him, they are both based, Peter says, on faith in Christ Jesus. So Peter says, in brief, I disagree with what these guys are saying about you must keep the law of Moses. The confusion of the gospel is this. And this seems like an old church argument that we've long since settled and, and dealt with, and so why? Because there are people all around you today, and Christians too, just like then, who believe that either in some ways people need to behave in certain ways if they are saved, genuinely, and especially to be in good standing with God, to please God, to have God's approval as a child of God, you need to keep certain things. You need to do what God has said in his law. You're approved by God. You please God by keeping the law. Make yourself a list and do what it says. I had a man tell me several years ago, I need a list of what I'm supposed to do and not supposed to do. And that was the basis of his Christian life. And that was what was at stake here. First of all, how to be right with God. Are we right with God by keeping the law? Are we accepted by God? Are we saved from judgment because we keep the law? Unless you are circumcised, you cannot be saved, they said. In one word, no. 
That is not true. God has said very clearly in his word, he says it through Paul in Romans, by the works of the law, no human being will be justified, will be declared righteous in God's sight because since through the law only comes the knowledge of sin. The law is an inspector's checklist. The law shows you everything that's wrong with you. The law has no power to fix any of it. The fire marshal comes through here once a, once a year and she gives us a list. He or she, whichever one comes along, they inspect and they give us a list of all the ways that we fail to keep you safe from the fires that could come raging through this building at any moment. Now, I'm not, I'm not mocking seriously. Fire marshals are very careful about what they do because they have seen horrendous uh, death and destruction that didn't have to be if only people had been more careful. But they give us a list. You know, the fire marshal has never once fixed any of it for us. The list, we hold it up, we show it around the building. Building, look, here's the list. It doesn't change anything. The list, the inspection, the requirement has no power in itself to affect the change. That's the problem with the law. The law's purpose is to reveal sin, not to change it. We hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. We know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also, Paul tells Peter in Galatians 2, have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Because by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. An old hymn puts it this way. Run, run, and do the law commands, but it gives me neither feet nor hands. A far better thing the gospel brings. It bids me fly. And it gives me wings. We take off. The, the, the gospel, the new covenant, gives us a means by the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit by which we can walk with God. In fact, we can soar. What we never could do before. How to be right with God is by faith in Jesus Christ. And how to live right as a Christian is not by keeping the law. It's not by observing a list and making sure I follow the rules. But it is by walking in the fruit of the Spirit. Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8 comes right after Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7 points out the weakness of the law. What the law does is the law stirs up sin in us. When the law came, Paul says, sin revived and I died. The law stirs up sin in us. The law stirs up rebellion, not because the law is bad and has that effect. It's sin in me, which will rebel against God's holy and right law. And so when I lay out the rules, this is what I must do, I am actually arming sin within me in its rebellion against God. I take away the law, and if I say there's nothing in my hand I bring, simply to Christ's cross I cling, that my acceptance before God and my pleasing him is based on living by faith in Christ rather than trusting my own efforts. I take the teeth right out of the law. The law or the, that sin within me, rather. I take the teeth out of sin. Sin can still try to gum me, but I've taken away its teeth in, in condemning me with guilt because in Christ Jesus there's no condemnation. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free from the law of sin and death. What is this law of the spirit of life? The Holy Spirit is a life-giving spirit. For God has done what the law, weak by the flesh, couldn't do. By sending his own son in the likeness of flesh and for sin, he condemns sin. 
in order that the righteous requirement, here's the money line, the righteous requirement of God's law, which is right and holy and just, is fulfilled in us who walk not according to our own human ability, but according to the spirit of the living God. The essence of the new covenant, covenant God said all the way back in the, in the prophets, Jeremiah and Ezekiel was, I will put my spirit in them so that they are able to walk in my ways. That God as a work, is at work in you, Paul tells the Philippians, both to will. Somebody told me once he jiggles your willer. God is at work in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. And so we yield to the Holy Spirit so that the fruit of the Spirit is produced in us, the fruit of that Holy Spirit working in us, which is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, meekness, self-control. I hope I get that list right. I've used it a couple of times. Did I miss one? Against those things, there is no law. You see, we're all worried about all the stuff we're not supposed to do. How about just living in the Spirit and letting God produce his fruit? I watched a fruit tree one day work. It was shaking and it was sweating. There were beads of sweat coming out on the leaves and on the fruit that was being produced. No. The life of the tree was simply moving up through and out of the tree and producing fruit on the tree. The shaking of the effort was actually the wind. The sweat that I saw was actually the dew of the morning. Fruit is not produced by our own best efforts, but by the life of God within us. Isn't that good news? That's good news. The gospel was confused, and it's clarified. Well, what use then is the law? Practical point, are we New Testament Christians who said, I've got letters from Paul, I've got the gospels of Jesus, I don't need any of that Old Testament stuff anymore. I don't live under law, I don't need that stuff. You know, actually in our men's group this fall, I'm wanting to, to, to start us looking into life in relation to the book of Judges. That's an Old Testament book if you didn't realize it. Terribly relevant today. Terribly relevant. The book of Judges, what, what, use, is the old, what use is the law to us today? The use of the law is this. We also read the law in the Old Testament... You can quote me on this. Not in order to try to obey the law, but because the law also reveals God to us, as all of God's word does. The law and the prophets and the gospels and the epistles are the revelation of God. God revealing himself to us. So, the commandment tells me, do not commit adultery. Well, it tells me that I'm somebody that needs to be told as a human. I'm so sinful that I need to be told not to be unfaithful because I will be unfaithful. But it also tells me something about God, that God tells us not to be unfaithful because God is not unfaithful. God is, in fact, the essence of faithfulness. The very essence of his being is faithfulness. I change not, says the Lord. So we are, we are called to be faithful because God is faithful. The commandment tells me something about God. The commandment tells you, do not steal. Why? Well, Paul picks up that commandment in the New Testament, in Ephesians chapter 4, and he says, let the one who did steal, you did, let the one who did steal, steal no more. Go and sin no more, Jesus says. But rather, let him labor working with his hands 
He doesn't say trying hard not to steal. He says instead labor, working with his own hands so that he might have something to give, to share with those who are in need. You see, the commandment says don't steal, not because God simply isn't a stealer. The commandment says don't steal because God is a giver. And by the spirit of the living God in us as his children, working out his family resemblance in us, he calls us to not merely not steal, That's little stuff. He calls us to be givers of ourselves for the sake of others. The law reveals what God is like so that we can walk with him. Okay, so the gospel was confused and the gospel is confirmed in this. How do they arrive at that? How do they come to this clarity? They go through a particular process that we could see played out in verses 12 through 29. Let me read some of these verses. I may jump a little bit here. But picking up in verse 12, all the assembly fell silent. They listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the, among the Gentiles. But that Signs and wonders didn't prove the point. Watch how James now concludes the meeting, verse 13. After they finished speaking, James replies, Brothers, listen to me. Simon, Simeon, also called Peter, has related how God first visited the Gentiles when Peter goes to the house of Cornelius to take from them a people for his name. So first of all, we have the word through the word through Peter the Apostle. Okay? One of the 12 apostles of Christ. Now James says, but let's not just take Peter's word for it. He says, with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this, I will return. I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord, and that the, all the Gentiles who are called by my name. That remnant of mankind means the rest of mankind, not just Israel, but the rest of mankind. All the Gentiles may also, who are called by my name, may seek the Lord. God intends to save nations as nations, not as Israel. The Old Testament prophets say, in fact, you could go to Isaiah 49, where Isaiah says, you know, concerning my servant, the Messiah, it's too small a thing. If for him to just be the savior of Israel. No, I'm going to make him the savior of all the nations. So that in the book of Revelation, gathered around the throne, from every tribe, nation, tongue, and people. It is not one big gathering of a much larger Israel because everyone else has become part of Israel under the law. No, all nations in Israel who has the law and out of Israel who were never under the law all come to God accepted on the basis of grace in Christ. James points out the Old Testament agrees with that. So we have the words of an apostle confirmed by the rest of Scripture And so then James gives his judgment that we should not then trouble these Gentiles who turn to God. We should write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual morality, and from what has been strangled, and from blood, the blood not drained from the meat. These are things particularly rampant or common in Gentile, non-Jewish culture that are of particular importance for various reasons. The second two, really sensitivities related to Israel that I'll talk about next week. The first two, I'll talk a little bit more about this morning. But let me read on. 
From ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he's read every Sabbath in the synagogue. So be sensitive to the Jewish people who are around you. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. And so they sent Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas. We'll hear more about Silas coming weeks. Leading men among the brothers with the following letter that lays out these things they've concluded. So it seemed good to the apostles, the elders, and the whole church gathered together that this was the conclusion based on the apostolic word witnessed by the rest of Scripture. So those three keys go together here. Those three keys of how the gospel is confirmed. Um, and uh, know what God said. How do we know what God said? There's another slide that gives me three points, and I messed one of them up here. Nope, next slide. There it is. God's from through his apostle. From should be God's word. That's just me. That's all on me. See, I'm a sinful, messed up human being. God's word through his apostles. When I say apostolic word, I do not mean the word of somebody who claims to be, I am an apostle today. I'm the apostle of such and such. No, no, no. We're talking about one of those 12. We're talking about one of the apostles, the foundation of the church. The church was founded upon the apostles and prophets, Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. So God's word through his apostles, which is confirmed by the rest of Scripture, even Jesus, when he is presenting himself at his resurrection, how does he do it? He doesn't just do it based on the signs and wonders of the resurrection. He doesn't say, you have to believe this because here I am. He says, you have to believe this because look, and he And he showed them from Moses and all the prophets the things concerning himself. Even Jesus validated his own resurrection in this same manner. So the words of an apostle confirmed by the rest of Scripture, affirmed by the broader church. The church meets together and they say this is orthodoxy. There's a lot of things that differ from church to church, but there are boundaries of orthodoxy that you are Christian or you are not. And the means by which a person is right before God is one of those essentials. If if, if you're wrong about the gospel, you are wrong about everything. And so, we need to be careful then about unique and private interpretations. An individual group, a person, or teacher says this, and nobody else is saying that. That's new. That's different. Oh, wow. There's nothing new, folks. The church has been at this for 2,000 years. If I'm the first one to ever see something from God's word, guess what? I'm probably getting it from somewhere else because God's uh, men and women of God, illumined by the Spirit of God, have been in God's Word for 2,000 years now in the church. So I'm not getting new things that people before me didn't ever see. All right? Now, beware of private interpretations. Beware of, well, what it means to me is, well, that might be nice, but I really don't care what it means to me. You don't really care what it means, what, what I see here, what it means to me. You care what it means. You care what God means. The meaning of a statement does not reside in the listener. It resides in the person making the statement. Every parent of teenagers knows this. Right? The meaning resides in the giver of the message, not the receiver of the message. But sometimes the receiver doesn't get it. That's our problem in hearing from God. But the meaning resides, the meaning rests with the sender of the message. 
Beware of private interpretations. Beware of an isolated text. Well, this one little verse, and sometimes an obscure verse, out of context, it seems to say something, and so I hang everything right there. What does the rest of Scripture say? That's, what, that's, that's where James went. He said, what Peter says, that's what the rest of Scripture says too. And finally, something new, something lately, which only some more spiritual Christians or only certain churches really know and understand that's probably not the truth of God's word. That's probably their deal. Watch out for it. Well, the church comes together. You know, that reading that we had beforehand, Peter, Peter says this later on. That, that somebody came to me this last week, speaking of this special stuff, special revelation for just somebody. Somebody came to me last week and said, could I prophesy over you? I have a special message of God that God sent me to give to you. Oh, well, that's very interesting. And so they, began to, they proceeded to give me this message, and it was a very vague, generic, not specific uh, message of encouragement from God that could be true with almost every person in this room. It could have been for any one of you, but this was specially from God to me. Wow, I must be special. That God bothered to reach down and to give something, send somebody just for Bob. And then there was with that, there was an add-on. There's even more. For a limited time, Bob, if you are willing, I have got more spiritual gifts that I would give you if you are willing. Wonderful. Who doesn't want more? Except Peter says, now we can go back a verse, God in his divine power has granted to us everything that we need for life and for godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to glory by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises. I love the King James there. Exceeding great and precious promises he has given unto us. Why is it that we get so excited about vague, ambiguous, generic promises that somebody said were especially from God for me when God has given us very specific, very clear, that we even so specific and finger on my chest that we try to wiggle out of it. But God has spoken very clearly to us. He's spoken to me, and he's spoken to you, and he's spoken to you, and he's spoken to you in his word. I don't need more than that. Peter, when strengthening the church for new false teaching that was coming in, didn't give them anything new. Jude, warning against false teachers, does not give the church anything new. He points them back to the once for all delivered to the saints faith or body of truth. What we must believe. So the church is strengthened together in this. The gospel is celebrated as the church is strengthened to walk in, live out this truth of the gospel. Look at verse 30. So when they were sent off, they went then down to Antioch. They're sent from Jerusalem. They go to Antioch. And having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. Here's the answer. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. They rejoiced that there's no burden put upon them, that they are fully accepted in Christ. They rejoiced that they will live and walk before God now, not by their own best efforts, but by the power of the Spirit. They rejoiced. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by those 
go back to those who had sent them, but Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. What were they encouraging and exhorting? See that word encourage and strengthen? The encourage is a word that means not only to, to lift up, to encourage, say, well done, you're doing great, but also to exhort, say, come on, a little farther, go, press, press on. It's, it's an exhortation, it's a challenge, it's a come on, it's a call to take the next step up. What is it that they exhorted, encouraged, strengthened the church in? I think in particular this Gentile church, two areas, the same two areas the church said, but watch out for these. These are the things that are going to get you. These are not things that Jewish believers wrestled with to the same extent that the Gentiles did because of the tone of their culture and society, and ours as well. The same things that caused Corinth to stumble caused the American church and American Christians to stumble. The same things that they were worried about for the, for the new Christians in Antioch are the same things that we worry about for one another right here. They are two. Idolatry and sexual immorality. Keep yourselves, guard your hearts from idolatry, he says, and sexual immorality. Those are big here. There must be a reason for that. Idolatry, first of all. Idolatry is anything. It's rampant in the Roman Empire, and idolatry is anything in which we seek and find our fulfillment in instead of our relationship with God through Christ and his purposes for it. Idolatry can be the things that we buy. It can be the positions that we pursue, the recognition of others, the experiences we want to have. There are many things that can be our idols where we seek to find our worth and significance and fulfillment. Those are our idols. Paul even warns the church that watch out for coveting, for desiring other stuff, what other people have, because coveting is idolatry. It plagues us. We live in a very materialistic culture. And it's all about stuff and status. And status comes from stuff. Watch out. Watch out. Beware of the idolatry that's all around us. That is, that is common in our culture. And even sexual fulfillment can be an idol. There's where we think we'll matter. There's where we think we'll be fulfilled. That's what we think will really make us feel full. And so there's a diversion, a distraction. There is a counterfeit for that too. And the word here for sexual immorality is the same word that we get. Our, it's the word, Greek word porneos. It's where we get our word porn or pornography. And rampant in our culture today. I've been reminded of that just this week. I've, I've, I've spoken, we have conversations in three different areas, three different families affected, impacted by this. And they're living in the aftermath. They're trying to pick up the pieces now. Where do we go from here? This is terribly destructive in our culture. Somebody told me this week that 50% of the internet traffic worldwide 50% of the internet traffic worldwide is pornography. I couldn't believe it. That's stunning. I know how much is on the web, and so if, if, if half of all that's out there is that, 
man, are we in trouble. I watched a video at a Dallas seminary, a table talk that they were having on this issue. And one of the men there, Josh McDowell, was talking about how early children in the church are going to be exposed to pornography. If not from some internet gateway that you have provided in a computer or a phone, through their friends, unprotected filter or phone. They're going to be introduced to it and far younger than you realize. One of the stats, there was a woman on this table talk and she was describing ministry related to women in the church because we often think of this as a men-only problem. This is a male problem in particular. She said the stats today when people are honest is 30% of women in the church today, 30% of women today have been impacted or struggling with pornography as well. She said that for her, for many years, this was a shame that she hid because she thought this is not a woman's problem. This is a man's problem. Why do I have a problem with this? She thought she was all alone. And that's the enemy's tactic, to use shame to cut you off from the herd. What's the answer to that? James tells us, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. We need to have an openness. One of the common things that we might do in a church is, you know, in the in this problem is so rampant today. I I if 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 you're willing to admit and confess today that you struggled in this area in the past or now, would you stop? No, no, we're not gonna do that. We're not gonna play the shame game. But if that confess your sins to one another is true, what if we do this? If you would be willing. If you would say that if somebody came to me, if one of my brothers and sisters came to me and said, I've been struggling with this, would you pray for me? Would you push them away? Would you say, no, I don't want anything to do with that? Or would you say, yes, of course, I will pray for you. You are my brother, my sister in Christ. Let's pray together. How many of you would say, yes, I would pray for you if you came to me and said, I'm, I'm struggling? Would you stand? If you would live out James and say, yeah, I would do that, then stand up and show everybody around you. If you came to me, I would not push you away. I would not back off. I would stand with you and pray for you. That's what I want to stand. You see, that's, that, that's all of us. That's where the church has got to answer this. We've got to simply do what God said, which is, Confess your sin to one another. Don't hide in shame and let the enemy cut you off from the herd. Instead, confess our sins to one another and pray for one another. We need to get proactive at this. Take your seats. One more thing that's hit me this week. You know, I heard John Piper, and I know I'm over time. I apologize for that, but I've got to say this too. I heard John Piper say once that if you... If you socially drink alcohol, and you certainly can, the scripture does not tell us do not drink, the scripture tells us don't be drunk with wine, okay? So as long as you're not getting drunk, you could drink socially. That would be okay. But, if, but Piper said, you know, if you today, in our culture, in our environment, if you socially drink, you probably do not have a close friend or family member who is or has been an alcoholic. Because if you did, you would not. Because the damage you've seen and the damage you don't want to cause in the life of somebody you love, you wouldn't go there. You'd give it up for them. I don't drink because one of my parents suffered, struggled with alcoholism for years. Well, how does that relate to this? We've all got smartphones. 
But what we are carrying around with the internet today, when we carry a smartphone around in our pocket, we are carrying around an invitation from the enemy, wait, just waiting to, for us to peel the brown paper off of it, to open it up and to accept his invitation into the destruction of our souls. Why do we do that? Perhaps Piper today might say something like, if you still carry around a smartphone, it might be because you are not willing to admit that there's somebody much closer to you than you realize that is struggling with this. And they think they need to have a smartphone too. What if, what if we started a new movement what if we said, and saved a lot of money on our cell phone bills at the same time, and said, you know, what about the not-so-smartphone? Let's start a new movement. I, I, I've been convinced. I was looking on the phone. What, what can I, it, it's hard to find. Yeah, there I was on the Internet on my phone. Why do I sit there on the couch in the evening, and instead of talking with and, 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 and dialoguing with my, my sweet and lovely wife, and she is sweet and lovely, but instead of sitting there, in, you know, in the idle moment, going through my phone, reading something, news, and all, I, checking my emails again and know they haven't replied, why? I don't need internet email on demand. I don't need Google's answers because they're probably not legit anyway. I don't need that so much as we would do far better to be proactive together for one another. I don't need it. If you've got a, an old flip phone, well, old flip phone, I don't know if they still work. The battery's probably caved long ago. But I need, I need to go there. I invite you to join the movement. Not so smart phone after all. Let's pray. Father, we, we want to be clear about the gospel for ourselves, for the sake of people around us, for the sake of how, how we walk before you in your strength and not our own. Father, that's true in this issue also, that we'll do this not in our strength but in yours by the power of your spirit and by the means that you have given within your church to come alongside one another. Father, we want to celebrate the gospel. We want to, that which we know very clearly from your word and its broader witness through history, Father, we want to celebrate this truth, this reality in the midst of a godless culture that simply doesn't know you and needs to. Lord, might they know of you from us because we are more than ever a church that is ready to be on mission. Father, would you take how we yield and commit ourselves? Father, would you use even this offering that is received now? Would you use, Father, even those that would use those cards to say, pray for me about this? Father, would you use this would you use even this offering now to put your church on mission toward one another and in this community and in this world and all who agree said, amen.